Salutations, my friends. This is another call for help. We need a new sound engineer able to take our raw podcast audio coal and craft it into shiny diamonds. If you are listening to this, then we would love to have you on the team. Just email mike at ultrasoundgel.org. Now, on to the show. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Today we have a special edition podcast and I am joined by a very special guest. Sean Hickey is with me today and we're going to talk about heart failure. This is the heart failure extravaganza episode and we are going to talk about all sorts of ultrasound and how you can apply it to patients with acute heart failure. Sean, I would love for you to tell a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm uh, Sean Hickey from Queens, New York originally. I did my emergency medicine training at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, and I'm currently finishing up an anesthesia critical care fellowship at UCLA, and will be starting at USC LAC uh, in the next few months, predominantly doing CTICU with a little bit of ED time. Well, congratulations on securing that job. Sounds wonderful. I'm pretty excited to talk to you today about heart failure. How are you doing today, first of all? Doing excellently and happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here because I am very interested in picking your brain on a lot of these heart failure topics. Now, the way that I was connected with Sean was actually through some guidelines that were recently published and Sean was on those, but let me give you a little bit of background first on heart failure in case you're unfamiliar with how ultrasound can be used for heart failure. I think that heart failure is essentially the poster child for why ultrasound can help you in the acute care setting because it's just a great example of how this modality can quickly get you the answer that you need and allow you to initiate the correct management when it's an undifferentiated patient that you may not know what's going on. It's been published time and time again how ultrasound helps you in heart failure, whether it be diagnostically or somehow guiding your therapy. There's about a billion different protocols that you can use for these purposes. And the thing is, those protocols can vary wildly. Sometimes it's just the heart. Sometimes you're looking at the heart and the lungs. Sometimes you're looking at the IVC. We even talked about an article recently that looked at your common femoral vein Doppler signal to help you in heart failure. So there are things all over the map. And I invited Sean here to help us discuss these various protocols and options and try to make sense of all the evidence out there and figure out what's the best option, what do we need to know how to do. Now, the article that I mentioned was published in October 2022 in Annals of Emergency Medicine, and this was a clinical policy on the evaluation and management of adults with acute heart failure. This is a really great read, and we will link to it in our show notes. You should definitely check it out. Very easy to understand the way that they have laid this out. Sean was one of the authors on this article, and according to Amal Matu, he was the ultrasound person that I needed to talk to about these guidelines. I have to throw in a little caveat here. What we're going to discuss today is Sean's point of view and Sean's experience and perspective. This is not ASEP's opinions, but he does have a unique vantage of having co-written these guidelines. So I know you're all excited to get to Sean's take, so let me quit delaying that. I want to just start off by saying the first question, the first question, clinical question in these guidelines state this 
in adult patients presenting to the emergency department with suspected acute heart failure syndrome, is the diagnostic accuracy of point-of-care lung ultrasound sufficient to direct clinical management? That is the very first thing in this paper. It's about ultrasound. I was amazed. So that tells us this is a hot topic. Sean, after all this, can you tell us a little bit about what was recommended, why it was recommended, what went into this? Okay, so this was a level B recommendation, which reflects moderate scientific certainty. So the recommendation was that in patients presenting with acute dyspnea and a possible diagnosis of acute heart failure syndrome, evidence supports the use of POCUS to improve the diagnostic accuracy and help direct management. The presence of B lines on bedside ultrasound is an independent predictor of acute heart failure syndrome. When combined with historical information, physical exam findings, bedside ultrasound outperforms chest radiography and laboratory testing, including natriuretic peptides. Awesome. So my take on what you just said, it sounds like ASEP is endorsing the use of lung ultrasound to help you make this diagnosis. Is that fair to say? Correct. If you look at this paper, you'll see the number of references are very impressive. So it seems like you and the author group combed through a huge amount of data to get to this endpoint of this recommendation. Can you tell us a little bit about that data and also specifically why the recommendation states using just lung ultrasound? So ASAP takes their clinical policies very seriously and their methodology very seriously. So there was originally over 500 articles that were screened, which was originally conducted by a medical librarian. About 16 articles at the end were chosen for further review. These go to methodologists that grade them, um, whether if it's class one, class two, class three studies. Ultimately, nine studies were included. One of them was a class one study, and eight of them were uh, class three studies. From my understanding, this was done a little bit before I was put onto the writing committee, but lung ultrasound was chosen because it was thought to be a very fast, reliable, and relatively easy to learn modality as opposed to more complex echocardiography. So essentially, when you look through all of the literature, so there, like I said, there's one class one study and eight class threes. The One of the best studies to start with is Martindale et al., which is a um, class three, actually, uh, systematic review and meta-analysis that looks at all the different findings of uh, heart failure in the ED. So it looks at both physical exam, EKG, history. For all of these, the sensitivity is fairly low. Some of the physical exam findings or history findings are fairly specific, but the sensitivity ranges, for example, for an S3 gallop, is 13% sensitive while 98% specific. Once you start getting into chest x-ray, the actual sensitivity is much lower than you think. The sensitivity of chest x-ray was about 57% with a positive likelihood ratio of 4.8. And then you have your BNP cutoffs, which depending upon where you have the cutoffs is varying degrees of sensitivity or specificity. However, through in the Martindale study, it was found, lung ultrasound was found to have an 85% sensitivity and a 93% approximate specificity with a positive likelihood ratio of 7.4 and a negative likelihood ratio of about 0.16. This is now compared to all different modalities that are used to diagnose acute heart failure syndromes in ED. That's what I love about the Martindale study, and we cite it so often, is because it seems like they didn't set out to say, like, ultrasound is great. This wasn't an ultrasound paper. This wasn't written by ultrasound fanatics. 
But what they found when they looked at the sum of all the different diagnostic findings in acute heart failure from everything you said, they just happened to find that lung ultrasound really outperforms a lot of our commonly used testing. And I thought that's really cool. So that's a great, that's a great starting point. Exactly. And then also Marndale looks at um, echo itself. And the sensitivity for a restrictive mitral pattern is about 81%, 81, 82% with specificity of 90%, and then a re- which is essentially diastolic dysfunction. And reduced EF is also about, is actually 80 per, uh, 81% sensitive and specific with a increased left ventricular and diastolic dimension being a little less, around 70%. So it really shows that ultrasound is superior than most of our, than our physical exam and our history. And in terms of and BNP and chest x-ray, in terms of consistent sensitivity and specificity. And of course, you know, Sean and I are, are doctors first and foremost, and, and not just ultrasound people. So we still think it's important to do your physical exam and get a good history. But we're saying using all this together, using the power of ultrasound can help you get to the right diagnosis. And not only can it help you get to the right diagnosis, but it can help you faster and reduce medical errors. So kind of follow up on that, there was a class two study in McGivery et al., which was also a uh, systematic review and analysis that found that lung ultrasound was about the same as Marndale showed, about 83% sensitive and specific for both with a good like good positive and negative likelihood ratios. Um, when they actually limited that down to attending levels, it was actually a sensitivity of 89% and 83% specificity. They did find, though, that in this systematic review meta-analysis, that one of the studies showed that um, lung ultrasound scans were completed in less than one minute, and the other study showed less than five minutes. And that seems to match up with my experience. I mean, in somebody that's really sick, you don't want to be spending a lot of time figuring out what's going on. And oftentimes, if somebody's in acute heart failure and you're you know, putting them on BiPAP and starting nitro drips or whatever you want to be doing, and you just plop on the ultrasound probe, you see beelines everywhere, you kind of have your answer. So it can doesn't need to take that long of a time. And then, you know, this is also supported by some uh, prospective studies. So the Italians tend to do a lot of actual lung ultrasound research. And so there was a study in 2019 by Pavetta et al. that actually was a multi-center parallel randomized controlled trial looking at all patients presenting uh, with acute or acute on chronic dyspnea. Um, essentially, what they found was that in the two arms, both groups had the same, di- same clinical diagnosis of acute heart failure syndrome. Um, but the actual, then they broke it down to chest x-ray plus BNP versus lung ultrasound. And the addition of chest x-ray and BNP did not actually change the diagnosis, the correct diagnosis of acute heart failure syndrome, but the addition of lung ultrasound did. And that study, they also found that utilizing lung ultrasound reduced diagnostic errors in about 8% of patients and reduced their medium time from diagnosis from 105 minutes to five minutes. And that was building off of a study that they had also done in 2015 that looked at the incorporation of lung ultrasound uh, improves your diagnosis of acute heart failure syndrome and has been shown to be superior to our standard of chest x-ray and BNP. And I remember when this study came out, it was kind of groundbreaking because prior to this, we all intuitively felt that ultrasound was really helpful, but there hadn't been a study that was done so well as this one. Prospective, randomized, pretty, you know, over 500 patients enrolled. And it showed just what we would have hoped that 
long ultrasound outperformed the chest x-ray plus BNP arm and did so much, much faster. So that was really a high level of evidence to add to what we already had at that point. So it makes sense that that's still a really good piece of data to go into some of these ideas and recommendations. It actually, you know, really corresponds to, I guess, my real world experience where back in residency, unfortunately, it took quite a while on the span of hours to get a chest x-ray. So pretty much every short of breath patient that came in, I used to heart lung IVC ultrasound. And frequently I could just call up the cardiologist and be like, well, we got a lot of beelines, depressed EF, IVC is huge. Can I admit to your service? And this could be, would be done within 20, 30 minutes. I'm hitting the door. And a lot of times the cardiologist, well, we don't even need to wait for labs. If they're not going to, you know, step down or ICU, we'll handle it. We'll follow up everything. So it actually improved, you know, my door to disposition time quite a bit. That's exactly right. It's so helpful, not just for the clinicians getting to the answers they need more, but for the patients, because you get to start on the therapies faster, maybe get them admitted faster. It definitely seems like a win-win for everybody involved. And we're not going to touch on it too much in this podcast, but you can actually use some of these findings too to help you guide your management even after they get admitted from the emergency department. You can quantify the amount of beelines to help you guide your diuresis, see if they're getting better. There's been a lot of talk on VEXIS, which is the venous excess ultrasound for helping figure out your patients. Are they really overloaded with fluid or you know, do you need to give them fluids? Do you need to diurese them? So there's a lot of ways ultrasound can help this population, even after the diagnosis. But for the sake of this, we're mainly focusing on diagnosis. So Sean, let's transition a little bit because we talked a little bit about some of the evidence. And of course, all of those will be linked into the show notes so you can look at the papers yourself. But I think one thing that we wanted to really tackle was how do we go through all these different protocols and figure out, like, do I need to every time look at their heart and do a full focused cardiac exam, plus a lung ultrasound with I don't know how many zones you want to pick? Do we have to look at the right side of the heart as well? Do we have to look at the IVC every time? Can you help us kind of piece together which parts are important and what we're looking for? Yeah, so I don't specifically follow a protocol. Kind of what I do in is amalgamation of kind of all the different training I've had from emergency medicine, uh, cardiac anesthesia, and, you know, training for my critical care echo boards. But I think really kind of from an emergency perspective is you want to try and get as much information as you realistically can. You know, I usually, there are, you know, the four point lung scans, the six point, the eight point, the 28 point. I kind of tend to just start on the interior and move my way kind of inferiorly. And then I start to move laterally into the axilla and move down. And if I can, you know, I try and get posterior, but sometimes people are too, to get make short of breath, weak that you can't get posterior. Sometimes there's a chest tube in the way or, you know, um, and then I do think that um, if you can getting heart, lungs and IVC all together kind of provides a full picture um, and I do believe that, uh, believe very strongly that if you are assessing the left side of the heart, you should be obsessing uh, the right side of the heart. To touch on the lungs a little bit, there was this really fascinating study that we covered on the podcast a couple years ago that was looking at beelines in patients with heart failure as well as pleural effusions. And it was comparing anterior lung fields to lateral lung fields. And what it found was that the lateral lung fields, which are actually like kind of lateral slash posterior lung fields, were much more sensitive for the diagnosis of heart failure. 
And that makes sense intuitively. Like a lot of these processes you would expect to be going more to dependent parts of the lungs in these supine or, you know, upright patients. So I think that really speaks to what you said that ideally you scan as much of the lung as possible. Like if you want to be the most accurate, you should cover the most ground, but at least trying to get, make your way down to the lung bases a little bit when you're looking for some of these findings makes sense to me. And usually what I do is I kind of take a curvilinear or phase array probe and I get a lot of gel and I kind of just keep moving down and I'm more looking for the total of what I'm seeing as opposed to, well, you know, I'm, am I in one specific quadrant or not? And you know, a lot of our newer machines, some of them do have built in artificial intelligence with beeline counters and you can put on the machine, the different zones and how many beelines you saw in each thing. I think that's all well and good, but really all you need to know is are there pathologic beelines in this area and are they symmetric? Because there are lots of things that can fool you. You know, if you come across maybe just unilateral beelines, sometimes that's more likely to be an infection, at least based on the blue protocol and, and my experience too. I know you always hear about this kind of a zebra where if you have the regurgitant jet at a certain angle, perhaps it could be going into one of the pulmonic veins and give you just unilateral pulmonary edema, but that seems like uh, much less likely than other causes for beeline mimics. For a zebra, I will say I saw that two days ago. <laughs> That's perfect. But yeah. your population may not be the same as, as the general. This was a uh, CTICU patient after a very difficult course. And I just remember staring at the x-ray being like, why is the right side just entirely whited out? Is there, do I have to bronch them? And then I did the echo. I'm like, oh, there's, there's blowing MR. Okay. That's really cool. Well, I haven't seen that yet, but I'm glad that it does exist and it does cause what, what has been reported. Any other important mimics from the lung finding standpoint we should discuss? You know, so I think I had a case kind of, I would say in the middle of residency where patient came in severely short of breath, tachypnic, hypoxic, diaphoretic, kind of hypertensive, kind of classically looked like your acute pulmonary edema patient. And I remember I put the probe on the lungs and there's diffuse B lines up to the apices, you know, just from that alone, I think would have very much looked like uh, acute heart failure. But then I looked at the echo and I saw that the EF was just slamming like incredibly hyperdynamic function. So I was like, all right, this doesn't totally make sense. Then check the IVC and it was entirely collapsed. And it's like, well, between the amalgamation of all this, I actually, he actually wound up having fulminant ARDS from a pseudomonal infection. But if I kind of just only looked at the lungs, I might've been put down a pathway that, you know, would have led me astray. That's why I do think it's important looking at all of them together and kind of developing your, your pump and pipe model. Mm, I like that. I think in terms of bang for your buck, lungs make sense because that's kind of trying to get at the acute process, whereas some of the cardiac findings, you don't know if they're acute or chronic some of the time. Mm -hmm. So let's use that as a transition, though, into our echo. So what sort of things are you looking at in a patient you suspect has heart failure and you're doing your focused echo? I know you, you might have some fancy stuff up your sleeve, but what sort of things do you think are appropriate for the for the general provider? I would say the first thing you want to eyeball is LV function. You know, do it on your parasternal long, your parasternal short, your apical four, and just is a squeeze, I think, good, eh, bad, are fairly all you kind of really need to know for a working man's diagnosis in the ED. 
the newer machines are allowing you to do Simpsons method of calculating EF, which isn't that hard, but you do need to do it a few times to kind of get an understanding how to do it. From there, just kind of, I think the most important thing to do that isn't always done is to kind of take a second and just look at the heart. Does the LV look really big? Does the walls look really big? Do the valves look, you know, like they're moving well? Do they look thickened? Do they look stenotic? Do when you do you see that the valves oppose to each other very well? I think that's kind of one thing that kind of people don't do as frequently. And then just throwing some color on the valves. It's relatively easy to throw some color on, you know, the mitral valve, the aortic valve, and see moderate to severe MR or AI. And then also, you know, you can, if you see that the valves don't open up well, right, you know, if there's a tiny valve error, you can get a decent estimation of, all right, do I think this person will have aortic stenosis? And that was actually one thing that I was a little bit surprised about in some of our discussions before recording today. I expected that the lungs were going to be important. I expected that the EF was going to be important. But I was a little bit surprised how much you want to emphasize these valves um, because that's not something I regularly look at all the time. I mean, it's not hard to do to throw on some color Doppler at least and see what's going on in general terms. But how do you use that in your practice? Why is that such an important aspect to you in this population? If you have a valvular problem, a severe valvular problem, um, most likely, no matter how much diuresis, how much medications, how much stuff you do, they're not going to improve or they'll continue to get worse. You know, really, I think one of the best things that emergency medicine can do is rapid diagnosis of things that weren't priorly diagnosed, severe aortic stenosis, severe mitral regurg, severe mitral stenosis, and then really quickly referring them to cardiac surgery or to cardiology, interventional cardiology for definitive management. And I think that's where you want to go. And then also, if you have severe aortic stenosis, for example, and you have somebody in extremis, you probably want to ensure the coronary perfusion pressure and get them a little more afterload. You might want to avoid inotropes because they actually are under severe myocardial oxygen demand and actually increased uh, heart rate might actually reduce their forward flow. And then same with, you know, people who are in severe MR, you know, you could foresee why they would have significant pulmonary edema. And then, you know, if you're working in a community, these are patients that you might want to transfer for mechanical support, you know, pretty early on. All right, I'm convinced. I'll start taking a look at the valves once in a while. Now, while we're on the left side of the heart, I want to just briefly say a little bit about diastolic dysfunction. I know you wanted me to, you know, not talk about it too much, but I just have to say in those patients that do have a preserved DF, say you have bilateral beelines that looking like heart failure, you get to the EF and you're like, this is totally normal EF. You get confused again, like, do I have the wrong diagnosis? And of course, you should consider everything. But in those cases, I've found it valuable if you just know a little bit about the left side of diastology, you might be able to diagnose significant diastolic dysfunction, and then it could make sense of the situation again. What are your thoughts on that? I think diastology is pretty hard. You know, even in the ICU, I don't generally bother calculating diastology. You know, I did it for my, uh, for my boards, for the, you know, exams I need to do. Um, but it's relatively complex. You have to calculate your E and A waves coming out of the mitral valve inflow, your um, your deceleration time. You know, then you have to calculate your medial and lateral um, annulus movement. Then you know you'd also have to start looking into to properly do it left uh, left atrial size. You'd have to start looking at maybe your pul uh, pulmonary vein flows. 
I think if you have the time to do it and the expertise, sure. But I think focusing on valves, LVEF and RV function would probably get you most of the way. And really it's just a layman's quick thing. If you look at really to get a significant amount of pulmonary edema from HEFPEF or diastolic dysfunction, you're going to need a fairly large left atria because the left atria is going to increase in pressure over time. And it's the increase in pressure in the left atria, which leads to backflow into the uh, lungs. So realistically, if I'm, say, in the ED and I'm doing an echo and I see a giant left atrium, I'm like, all right, this person has some diastolic dysfunction and I don't need to bother calculating is a, you know, is a grade one, pseudo normalization, grade two. You know, I kind of already know that there's going to be backflow from that large left atria. And then again, if you combine it with, there's lots of B lines and your IVC is 2.3 and no variation. I think with all that, you're, you're pretty well off. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So maybe it's not super high yield and the complexity may prohibit uh, all users from being able to do that in a timely or accurate manner. So I, I kind of get that. There are some papers that we'll link to in the notes that do show like kind of an easy diastolic protocol and maybe that would work, maybe not. But there's other stuff we can talk about and a lot of other signs you may see without having to go through that trouble. So let's talk about the IVC at this point. How do we use that? What would you expect in a heart failure patient? Well, I do think before we talk about the IVC, we should talk about the right ventricle. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. Also known as the people's ventricle. <laughs> so the RV, unlike the LV, so if the if the LV essentially is a roughly cylindrical shape and it contracts symmetrically, you can eyeball that. Most, I, I think this shown that with relatively little training that most people can estimate LVEF pretty well. The RV is more of a trapezoidal shape. It kind of contracts by both shortening its length and having almost like a twisting motion. So it's really hard, near impossible to just estimate what the RV function is. I think there's usually a very underdiagnosis, underrealization of significant RV dysfunction, which contributes to a large amount of heart failure. Certain things that you could do to estimate RV function is, first off, you could just, again, look at it. Is the size big compared to the LV? Generally, it wants to be less than two thirds. So if it's bigger than that, is there RV dysfunction? Now, the RV could be very big, but that could be as a compensatory mechanism for significant pulmonary hypertension while the function is actually good. So ways that you can look for RV function is to look at the TAPSI, which stands for the Tricuspid Annular Planar Systolic Excursion, which has been actually pretty well validated that it is a both quantitative way of getting RV function, and it actually has been pretty well validated as reproducible amongst emergency physicians. Relatively easy to do, relatively fast to do. In the same way that you do TAPSI, you can look at your tissue Doppler index um, and calculate like an S prime, which is the motion of the myocardium. Really, TAPSI is the way to go to look at RV function. Then one of the next things you kind of want to get an eye on is, are you dealing with significant pulmonary hypertension? And the way to do that is you look at the tricuspid valve, you throw some color on it and see if there's a lot of regurg. And from there, if there is through um, continuous wave Doppler, you can calculate a right ventricular systolic pressure, which is roughly equivalent to your pulmonary um, artery systolic pressure. And I can't tell you the amount of times I've gone to echo patients in the ED, and we wind up finding that they have near systemic pulmonary artery systolic pressures, RV dysfunction, which is very important not only in your treatment, but say, for example, if you need to intubate somebody, transfer somebody, you know, intubating somebody with RV dysfunction or failure can be very dangerous. So I think it can provide a lot of information, both for diagnosis and for treatment. 
That's awesome. I love all that stuff. And a lot of our listeners, maybe you're more familiar with checking out the right side of the heart for acute pulmonary embolism or other diagnoses apart from heart failure. But I think we can take that information, knowing how to calculate a TAPSI and an RVSP, and apply it to this population so you can see how that would play into your management of these patients. So I think that's great. And TAPSI has been well validated from emergency medicine to uh, the lower your TAPSI in the sitting of a PE, the higher your mortality. And it's also a way to, you know, these things are ways to calculate um, whether you have a massive or a submassive PE and, you know, kind of calculate RV dysfunction, your PESI score. It's a good skill to be able to do for multiple reasons. Anything else on the right side of the heart before we head down to the IVC? Well, the reason why I want to talk about the right side of the heart before we talk about the IVC is because essentially when you're looking at the IVC, what you're trying to do is estimate the right atrial pressure. The IVC, when you're looking at it, that's what you're attempting to calculate. So the IVC is, um, you know, a lot of people talk about it as, is it to show if somebody's volume responsive or not? What I kind of view the IVC as something that has been, you know, talked about quite a bit, but I learned this from Chad Myers down at Mount Sinai, is do, am I volume tolerant? Do I need volume? Am I volume responsive? And the IVC kind of helps me figure out these questions. So a small IVC, usually less than 2.1 centimeters two, with a large degree of respiratory variation greater than 50%, suggests a normal right atrial pressure about zero to five. An IVC diameter greater than um, 2.1, but with still greater than 50% variation, about five to 10, um, while an IVC less than 2.1 with minimal respiratory variation is about is over 10. And if you have greater than 2.2 with no respiratory variation, you're probably in like the 15 to 18 range. So normally if you have an IVC that's collapsible, small, I would say you're at least volume tolerant. You can take some volume. I'm not sure if you need volume. I'm not sure if you'd be volume responsive. Some volume. And that's how I utilize my IVC with the caveat that you know, an IVC can be, um, you know, altered by any sort of obstructive shock. So PEs, tamponade, pneumothorax, RV dysfunction, um, ascites, intra-abdominal compartment pressure. So that's kind of why it gets back to, I try and utilize heart, lungs, and IVC and everything, kind of try and mold it into kind of a picture of what's going on with the patient. You know, I was always intrigued at the right atrium could magically only have three different pressures of either three, eight, or 15. But what you're saying is that it's more of a qualitative assessment, putting it together with all the other factors, looking at the size, the collapsibility, and how that plays into what's going on with that patient's heart. These are all estimates. There have been times where I've had, say, a swan in a patient, because most of my patients have swans, and say the CVP, which is what you think is the right atrial pressure equivalent to is low, three, four, five, six. But then I do the IVC and, you know, there's three centimeters in diameter, zero respiratory variability. So I go to one of the cardiac anesthesiologists and like, I don't get this. They're entirely different, you know, what's going on. And like, well, actually, most likely it's probably pressure generation. So if your CVP and right atrial pressure derive from atrial kick and ventricular kick and kind of the pressure generated, if the heart isn't strong enough to generate that pressure, there's going to be more stagnation of flow. 
So there's kind of, again, I utilize all these things together to try and form a picture of what's going on with the patient, as opposed to just kind of like distinct little data points creating an answer. That makes perfect sense to me. I'm also curious to get your take. Uh, I know that the IVC is controversial in a lot of different ways, but in specifically heart failure population, where we know some people can be total body fluid high or overloaded, some may, the fluid may be backed up on their lungs, but maybe they're like overall hypovolemic. Does the IVC help you differentiate that at all? You're talking about are they intravascularly dry, but total body volume overloaded, which is the bait of my existence because that statement is just thrown out at all times for no reason. <laughs> um, and it's very common, you know, in patients who are very sick, sepsis, hyperinflammation from surgery, and they tend to third space a lot. Again, you know, I try and bring it all together. So, you you know, you mentioned Vexus earlier. I utilize Vexus as a way to prove that we should continue diuresing. Um, so a very common scenario is you have somebody who their creatinine is going up, their, their volume overload, their creatinine is going up, and you start diuresing. And then somebody says, but their creatinine is going up. We should stop diuresing. And then I'll calculate, you know, I'll do Vexus. And to be fair, I don't do the full Vexus. I kind of just do IVC, hepatics, and portal vein. And I'm like, well based upon this, they're incredibly overloaded. Their venous congestion on their kidneys is super high. We're, we should keep diuresing. And that's kind of how I utilize, you know, IVC in certain that way. And even, you know, you could just, while I'm looking at the IVC, I'll throw color onto it into hepatic vein, see as a reversal flow, which again, provides you a little bit more information. Um, there are sometimes patients who are, say, I need them to diurese because they're volume overloaded and I'll look at the IVC and I see that their IVC is actually pretty collapsible, but then, you know, they have pitting edema and almost weeping edema. Sometimes situations like that, they tend to be hypoalbuminemic. So I'll actually start, put them on around the clock, 25% albumin, and then I'll start diuresing to try and keep their, try and provide some encotic pressure to keep their fluids intravascular. And then obviously Lasix is protein bound, so then helps with your Lasix. And, you know, sometimes these are great situations for a Lasix strip. You know, some people say that, well, Lasix strips aren't superior to intermittent Lasix. However, it allows you to slowly diurese consistently throughout the day, as opposed to sometimes if you give them massive slug Lasix, they kind of become hypotensive because you pull too much fluid out at once. This is cool stuff we're getting into, and I really like it, Sean. Appreciate all your expertise on this. I want to try to bring it home now back to this patient in front of us. So let's say you go to a shift later tonight whether it's in the ICU or wherever you want to be, and you see a patient that you're worried about, they might have heart failure, they might have other stuff, what sort of ultrasound would be appropriate for this patient? And as a, as a secondary question, does it change depending on how sick they are? So if they're like crashing in front of you, you're thinking about intubating them, you're going to do something different as opposed to just a, a standard run-of-the-mill walkie-talkie person that seems like they're doing okay. So I would ultrasound all of them. So for the crashing patient we're talking about specifically here, I pretty much ultrasound every single uh, new sick patient I see. I think the amount of information you get is invaluable. I think the amount of diagnoses that you're able to rule out is invaluable. And I think the speed at which you're able to do that is invaluable. Generally, if I'm going to be intubating anybody who's very sick, I'll do a heart ultrasound pretty quick. So I want to understand what their cardiac function is, what their cardiac function is very much will depend upon my induction meds and how much epinephrine I'm chasing behind them. And even sometimes there'll be surprises. So, you know, recently we were, as a critical care team, just asked to come intubate a patient. 
you know, we thought, all right, you know, we're just coming in, being patient, but something teed us off. We looked at the heart and there was massive tamponade. And so this patient actually got red lined down to the OR where he said, you know, we're not going to intubate them. And, and they actually prepare the chest pre-intubation in case they do arrest on intubation, they can immediately um, go in and drain them. Um, so I will usually look at heart, lungs, IVC on every single patient who's sick, who I take care of. And then based upon that, I will go into more of a rush exam, modified rush exam, depending upon kind of what I need. And what about the more stable patients? You know, if they come in with chest pain or shortness of breath, I usually do. It helps you get a better idea of what to do with patients, whether, you know, like I said, I, I kind of never had a inability to get chest x-rays in residency. But so pretty much immediately I was able to rule out pneumothorax, a hemodynamically significant PE, a a pleural effusion, pericardial effusions, tamponade, and very kind of quickly rule out all the things that I'd be worried about. And then I could take time to trickle on labs. And then if you do have somebody in heart failure, I do think it's very helpful kind of when you're talking to your cardiology colleagues to, you know, tell them what you see, what's different from their prior echoes. And it really, I think, strengthens the, di- uh, the treatment modalities that you're going on. That's a really good point that you just brought up, comparing it to what used to be on their echo. And sometimes we don't have that readily available, but in the more stable patient where you can go back, see their last echo, see how it compares to what you're seeing in front of you today, that can be really useful in understanding the acuity of it and what's changing and leading to their presentation. And one thing I do think that really helps with echo and focus in general is to kind of elucidate the semi-well-looking patient, but who's in shock. Like, you know, the cardiogenic shock person who comes in, their blood pressure is 150 over 130. They're mildly tacky, but then their lactate's 80. You know, and it's, well, you know, a lot of times you would start to kind of go down, all right, is it mesoteric ischemia? What's going on here? But then you look at their heart, you're like, oh, well, their EF is 10%. And it looks like their, you know, their aortic valve is looking so good. And I think it would, it very much will help get them to the higher level of care that they need, whether they need mechanical support, um, inotrope-assisted diuresis, and can really move their care forward. Because unfortunately, I see these patients decompensate very, very, very fast. And if you from the ED can be on it within an extra hour, two, three hours, you know, it can really change a patient's life. Finding those patients that may look well to start, but are actually on the precipice of falling down a cliff and getting really sick. So that's a really good reminder that in all cases, whether they're crashing in front of you, ultrasound's useful. And when they're not crashing in front of you, ultrasound can still be useful. Before we summarize everything, I was really interested Going back to these guidelines that we jumped off of, in each section, they identified what are the next steps for research? Because on this show, we're always looking ahead, trying to say, what's the next best thing we could do? What's the progress we could make in terms of the evidence basis that we have in this certain area? So what's your take on that, Sean? Or, or what did you find as the group? So the ASAP clinical policy in terms of future research on this topic states, to date, no studies have evaluated more rapid diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure using lung ultrasound significantly alters important clinical patient-centered outcomes. A randomized controlled trial that compares the use of lung ultrasound to identify B-lines versus usual care and outcomes such as need for intubation, ICU admissions, and mortality would be the next logical step. Additionally, randomized controlled trials are also needed to examine whether the use of a multimodal POCUS strategy significantly improves the standard diagnostic workup for patients being considered for the diagnosis of acute heart failure syndromes in the ED. 
that sounds cool. So we're looking for more randomized controlled trials comparing ultrasound with standard care, kind of like that Pavetta study we mentioned, but maybe expanding it a little bit and seeing exactly how we can get some patient-centered outcomes with using this diagnostic strategy. Because as we've seen time and time again, I think we've established the accuracy of ultrasound. Now what we need to show is that using it is actually helping people when you're combining it with the rest of your clinical practice. So if I might be so bold as to summarize a little bit what we've talked about today, it sounds like acute heart failure patients have a lot of ultrasound findings and our take is that you should really be looking for all of them. Look at the heart, look at the lungs, look at the IVC, and put it all together to help you get not just to the right diagnosis, but also to the right management decisions. Anything else to add from your standpoint, Sean? No, I think that was excellent. Um, and you know, in case if anybody wants to go for their critical care echo exam or just learn more about uh, critical care echocardiography, uh, there was a fantastic textbook that was just released by doctors uh, Timothy Mouse and uh, Christopher R. Tainter. Um, it's called Essential Echocardiography, a review of basic perioperative TEE and critical care echocardiography. It's what I use to study my critical care echo boards and something that I constantly reference when I have new questions or kind of want to review material I've already uh, gone over. Well, Sean, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time and your expertise and your experience with us. This was informative for me, and hopefully it's valuable to our listeners as well. Get out there and keep ultrasounding your heart failure patients. Thank you to our listeners for hanging in there and sticking with our podcast. We always appreciate you. Remember that the show notes to this podcast and more stuff will be on our website, ultrasoundgel.org. And until next time, we will talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound gel. 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 Gel